Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Wayne Osterlin, and we are on to another episode. We have an incredible guest today, Dr. David Spiegel. He is the Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Director of the Center on Stress and Health, and Medical Director of the Center of Integrative Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Spiegel has more than 40 years of clinical and research experience studying psycho-oncology, stress and health, pain control, psychoneuroendocrinology, sleep hypnosis, and conducting randomized clinical trials involving psychotherapy for cancer patients. He's published 13 books, over 400 scientific journal articles, and hundreds of book chapters on hypnosis, psychosocial oncology, stress, physiology, trauma, and psychotherapy. His research has been supported by the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Cancer Institute and the National Institute on Aging, the National Center of Complementary Integrative Health, and the John D. Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Fetzer Institute, the Dana Foundation for Brain Sciences, and he was invited to speak on hypnosis at the World Economic Forum in Davos in 2018. So today, Dr. David Spiegel and I are going to talk about hypnosis and how hypnosis can help you with a top-down processing approach, really accessing your unconscious mind and changing how you think and experience the world around you. We're going to talk a little bit about the brain science. We're going to talk about his experience with hypnosis and how this became a passion for him to bring it to others to really help people live their best life. So I think you're really going to like it. Dr. Spiegel really takes all of his experience and clinical research and puts it all together to understand how this can be so helpful. So I hope you like this episode. I hope you get a lot out of it. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, think about writing a review. That would be really awesome. I really do read them. They mean a lot to me and they really help people find the podcast. I so much appreciate it. So thank you for all the people that have done that. They mean a lot to me to, to read them and see that the Addicted Mind is really helping a lot of people. I just really appreciate it. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join, and continue the conversation online. All right, stay tuned for this episode. 
All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I am excited to talk to our guest today, David Spiegel, and he is going to talk about hypnosis, how that works, how suggestibility works in the brain, how it can help us, and talk about top-down processing and how our unconscious can really help us heal. So, David, I'm excited to have you here. Please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you, and then we'll jump into this topic. Thank you, Dwayne. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm uh, the Wilson Professor and an Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. Came out to California for a year in 1975 from Boston and never left. So I've been at Stanford for more than uh, 40, 45 years. I run the Center on Stress and Health at Stanford and the Center for Integrative Medicine. And one of my particular interests has been how people can better control mind and body uh, using hypnosis. Hypnosis is the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's the first time a talking interaction between a doctor and a patient was thought to have therapeutic potential. But alas, it's always been kind of a sideshow in modern medicine and psychology. Right, and it shouldn't yeah. be. And the reason it's, it's still around is there's something interesting about it. I got, it's a bit of a genetic illness in my family. My late father, Herbert Spiegel, uh, was a psychiatrist, as was my late mother. They, they both told me I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be. And that's uh-huh. what I did. He learned it from a Viennese refugees before he shipped off to North Africa to serve in World War II. And this refugee couldn't serve because he was an American citizen, but he had learned about hypnosis and decided to teach young psychiatrists. And my father used it mostly to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, combat stress, and pain on the battlefield. And when he came back, he went back to study, to continue his training as a psychoanalyst. But he kept finding that he was getting farther faster using short-term hypnosis with patients. And I was, you know, the dinner table conversations were pretty interesting. And I went to medical school and took a course in hypnosis. You know, I had to do it. I was on Terry Gross once and she asked me if my father ever tried to hypnotize me as a child. And I said to her, Terry, I don't think so. And she said, okay. okay." (laughs) But I was interested and I, I took a course and my first patient, I was walking down the hall at Children's Hospital in Boston. The nurse said, uh, your next patient has is in status asthmaticus. And I just followed the sound of the wheezing down the hall. And there's this pretty 15-year-old redhead, bolt upright in bed, knuckles white, struggling to breathe. Her mother's standing there crying. The nurse is in the room. And I said, I don't know what else to do. They tried subcutaneous epinephrine twice. It didn't work. They were thinking about general anesthesia for her. And I said, you want to learn a breathing exercise? And she nods. So I get her hypnotized, and then I realized that we hadn't gotten to hypnosis in the course yet, uh, to asthma in the hypnosis course yet. So I said something very subtle and clever. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And within five minutes, she's lying back in bed. She's not wheezing anymore. Her mother stopped crying. The nurse ran out of the room. And my intern comes in looking for me. And I figured he was going to pat me on the back and say, nice job, Spiegel. What the hell did you do? And instead, he said, the nurse has filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor that you violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. Now, Massachusetts has a lot of weird laws. That's not on the list. And 
you know, that's the story with hypnosis. They either say it's worthless or it's dangerous, you know. And here, you, you couldn't have more evidence. She's sitting there breathing better. And he said, you'll have to stop doing this. And I said, oh, really? Why? He said, uh, well, because it might be dangerous. And I said, well, you were going to give her general anesthesia and then start her on steroids. And you think this, my talking to her is dangerous? And he said, well, and I said, tell you what, you can take me off the case if you want, but I'm not going to tell a patient of mine something I know is not true. So right, yeah. there was a council of war among the intern, the resident, the chief resident, the attending, and they came back on Monday with a radical idea for Children's Hospital. They said, let's ask the patient. I don't think they'd ever tried that before. And she said, oh, I like this. She'd been hospitalized every month for three months. She did have one subsequent hospitalization, but went on to study to be a respiratory therapist. And I figured that anything that could help a patient that much, that fast, piss off the head nurse, violate a non-existent Massachusetts law had to be worth looking into. And I've been doing it ever since. And I've used hypnosis with about 7,000 people in my career now. And I've published more than 100 papers of research on how hypnosis, what it is, how it works, what it does. So I want to share the wealth. That's awesome. I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about this. You know, a lot of times I think a lot of people when they hear hypnosis, they think of the, you know, the fair where the guy makes people do silly things and and the kind of comedy show, but working in mental health and understanding some of these underlying parts of how the brain works and and the body and and putting all those pieces together, I'm really interested to to jump into this. So, let's talk a little bit like hypnosis what does that actually mean like what are you doing you know outside of the kind of the cliche we hear right but from a medical perspective sure Dwayne. glad to do that hypnosis is a state of highly focused attention it's something like uh, you ever get so caught up in a good movie that you kind of forget you're watching the movie and enter the imagined world absolutely hypnosis is believed in imagination so you narrow your focus of attention. It's like looking through the telephoto lens of a camera, which you see, you see with great detail, but you're less aware of the context. And there are three components. It's this intensity of focal attention. To do that, you have to dissociate. You put outside of conscious awareness things that ordinarily would be in consciousness. So right now, hopefully you're so fascinated already by what I'm saying that the feeling you have in your back and your bottom touching your chair is not foremost in your awareness until I mention it. If it is, we can stop the interview now. Right, so right. We do it all the time. <laughs> we, we do it all the time, but we do it more intensely with hypnosis. So you put aside other things. You put aside judgments or evaluations. You just have the experience the way kids have the experiences. And the third thing, the thing that scares people the most, and you already referred to it, is is the idea of what's called suggestibility. You know, can somebody talk you into doing everything, anything, and they remember some dumb stage show where the football coach danced like a ballerina or something. What it really is is cognitive flexibility. It's it's an ability to to see an old problem from a new point of view, and that's part of the therapeutic power of hypnosis. So it's not that you're just susceptible to anyone. I mean, you know, look, we're social creatures, we're human beings, we're all susceptible to things that aren't true. I mean, 70% of Republicans think right. Trump won the election. You know, give me a break. That was, you know. So, yes, we are susceptible to new information. And that is what you try to do in psychotherapy. You try to get yeah. people 
to see an old problem from a new point of view, including problems with substance use. So hypnosis is a way of mobilizing that. And we've studied what happens in the brain using functional magnetic resonance imaging. We, sh we take a bunch of people, we found those who were high and low in hypnotizability, compared them in and out of hypnosis in the scanner. And we found that they turn down activity when they go into hypnosis in what we call the salience network. It's a part of the brain. It's like your alarm system. It matches context. And if while we're talking now, you suddenly hear a loud noise that sounds like a gunshot, your salience network is going to go off and you're going to stop concentrating on me and concentrate on something else. Hypnosis is the opposite of that. You're just turning that down, saying whatever's going on elsewhere, whatever else I maybe should be thinking about, I'm not going to worry about it. So you're freer to focus your attention. Then there's more functional connectivity between the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, part of the executive control network, the thing hopefully I'm using now <clears throat> to talk to you, and the insula, which is a small part of the brain that controls mind-body interaction. And that's the part that that young lady was using to reduce the constriction of her bronchioles and help herself break the asthma attack. So mind-body connection is intensified. And the third part is inverse connectivity when your executive control region is working. You turn off activity in another part of the brain, the posterior cingulate cortex. It's been called the default mode. It's a part of the brain where you ruminate. You think about yourself. If you're not doing anything else, when you're in that kind of a mode, you ruminate. And self-reflection is a way of keeping you stuck in where you are. Right, right, and yeah. Turning that off is a way of saying, well, maybe that's the way I used to do it, but I'm not doing it anymore. You know, I'm I'm going to try something new and different. And that's where hypnosis can be can be very helpful. Also, it's a part of the brain where the activity is turned down among meditators as well. They just don't. And the whole idea in meditation is to, you know, don't don't be so taken with yourself. Turn that off. Just experience things without it reflecting on it being you having the experience. So um, th th that's what hypnosis is. It's a simple state of highly focused attention with dissociation and flexibility of your cognition so that you can think about things in a new and different way. Right. You, when you're talking, I was thinking about your mentioning the salient network, right? Like, so like for a lot of people that are struggling with some mental health issues, PTSD, trauma, addiction, all those things come out of that. I would imagine that they're kind of hyper in that space or overactive in that space. So they, it limits that cognitive flexibility and, and, and we can't think of the, the situation in a different way that might bring about more peace or be more effective or, or whatever we get locked is that would that be right? What I'm saying? That yes, that's that that is right, Twain. You you have hyperactivity often in a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the center of fear and anger. And so, very often, people with post-traumatic stress disorder find themselves triggered by some memory or something that startles them or arouses them, and they find themselves reliving the event all over again, as if it were happening in the present moment. So they're dissociated, but in the wrong way. They're, you know, they don't know if they're going to survive the attack or the car accident or whatever it is. And so it just repeats itself because they feel reattacked by whatever it was that made them fearful in the first place. 
So they get caught in that loop, that the kind of like this PTSD feedback that's loop. Right. And then, you know, that's a that's a horrible place to to be. And if you have no other way to get out, you're you're gonna try and find something to bring relief. And often that can be a substance or a destructive behavior right. or just to just to not have the pain. That's right. That's right. But there are ways to deal with it, and hypnosis can be very effective and helpful to do that. So my my next question is when that person comes in and they're kind of in that heightened state, how, how do you move them out of that? How how do you start to shut that down and and open up, you know, that possibility, you like kind of quiet that that part of the brain? What we do, we start out with the mind-body connection. So when people are aroused in that way, one way that they feel the arousal is physically you know, they feel tension in their muscles, they start to sweat, they breathe more shallowly and rapidly, and they feel worse physically. And then they think, oh, my God, this is really bad. So their mental stress gets worse. And it's like a snowball rolling downhill. It, it speeds up. So what I say is, look, you have an ability to control the way your body feels. Let's start with that. So I have them go into a state of hypnosis and it just takes a matter of seconds. You don't have to count upstairs and downstairs for 15 minutes. It's very quick. And then it, it, you imagine you're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or just floating in space. And you can feel your body start to be more comfortable. So you're already beginning to deal with the stressor or the terrible memory because you're controlling your body's reaction to that memory. And then once you've done that, you can begin, I ask them to face one aspect of the traumatic experience. And, and with the rule that no matter what you're thinking about, your body is safe and comfortable. And we practice doing that. And then I'll have them picture some different way of looking at the same situation. So I had, for example, uh, a woman who had been raped at age 12 by their landlord. And the family was too intimidated to do anything about it. And she found as she grew up as a young woman after that, she said, my body was not my own. People would look at me on the street and she felt terrible. She was depressed. She had quit her profession early. And I said, I want you now in hypnosis to look at, at yourself as a 12-year-old girl. And she was a grown woman and a mother. And I said, and I want you to just think about her and what you would do for her. If you could be with her, what would you do? And would you blame her for what happened? Because she was, in fact, blamed for it, as many right. sexual assault victims are. And she started to cry, and she said, I'm stroking her hair. She's such a sweet girl. And she was able to see the same terrible situation from a different point of view. What she, How she would have reacted had she been her own mother reacting to her as a 12-year-old. And she called me about a week later and said, my psychiatrist wants to know what you did to me. She said, I'm not depressed. My friends don't recognize me. And it was a way of just taking a new point of view about this old, terrible problem that she, she had to live with. And so the nice thing about hypnosis is you can address it very directly. You can provide mind-body comfort while you're doing it. And you can help people see the same situation from a new point of view. And and the brain is more at that, when it's in that state, is more open to that suggestion. If it's not in that state or it's in that hyper alert state, it, it doesn't have that 
ability to to be that flex. You said cognitive flexibility earlier to bend a little bit, and then, and I would imagine recalling that event from this different perspective changes your whole relationship, uh, how your body experiences the event. That's right. That's right. Because you're able to maintain the comfort and safety in your body, even though you're remembering a situation that was terrible. And, and, and that's uh, an ability that we can mobilize uh, to help people with cravings as well. The craving is just, it's a feeling. And one of the problems with people who have substance abuse problems is that the more they focus on the craving, the stronger it gets. We, we people who use hypnosis like to say, the worst thing you can say to somebody is don't think about purple elephants. You know, what are you, what are you going right. to think about? And purple so elephants. telling yourself don't drink is just a signal to drink. And one of the tragic things, Nora Volkow, who's head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, points out that one of the problems with substance use, people with substance use problems, is that the chase is better than the catch. That is, people get more dopamine secreted in the in middle of their limbic system, which is a positive feeling, from the fantasy of getting what you want than when you actually start to use it. Right. And so yeah. you're tricked all the time. You know, you're tricked all. You think everything will be great when you get it, and it isn't. And instead, what we teach with hypnosis, and for people who are interested, we've developed uh, an app called Reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I, which you can download on your smartphones if it's an Apple phone from the App Store, if it's an Android from Google Play. And you can go through an exercise. Uh, you hear my mellifluous voice. I stop and ask questions. We then give you the next instruction based on the answer that you gave. And the approach that we use for drinking is similar to one we use for smoking, which is another app there. And that is you focus on what you're for, not what you're against. So you say, for my body, alcohol is a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. And so you focus on being in a different role. You know, not, not the role of somebody who, you know, feels bad about what you're doing, but feels you need to do it, but more like a parent to your own body and say, would you, would you take your six month old baby and pour a bunch of vodka down its throat? You know, absolutely right. not. No way. Would you feed it to your dog or your cat? No way. Focus on your role as parent to your own body. To your job is to respect and protect your body because what alcohol does is something to your body and to your brain. It's not to you. You will pay the price eventually when your body deteriorates enough or you do things when you're intoxicated. But uh, for the moment, you're doing something to your body. So think about taking a position of respecting and protecting your body. For my body, alcohol is a poison. I need my body to live. Um, you're not the same as your body, but you can't live without it. And I owe my body respect and protection. For you to do what you want to do with your life, you need to treat your body in a certain way to enable you to do it. You know, you wouldn't expect your car to drive you very far if you put sugar in the gas tank. You can't expect right. your body to take you very far if you're putting something that is an addictive poison to your brain. So, but you can come out of it feeling good. You can use it saying, I'm not depriving myself with something. I'm respecting and protecting my body. So from the moment you make that commitment, you can feel good about what you're doing. I, I have a question about that because 
and and this is I I would imagine where the hypnosis comes in because a lot of times when people are struggling, we can say that to ourselves logically, right, on a logical right. level, but it's this: you have to be in this hypnotic state. I'm and this is what I make up, and you can tell me if I'm off base here. You have to be in that hypnotic space where that body, you said it earlier, and I can't remember the brain regions <laughs> what that you mentioned, yeah, but sure, you know where sure that again. state is, you have to be in that state first. And that's what's really different about just like thinking differently. It's, it's, is that correct? Am I, am I seeing, am that's, I hearing yes, that correct? That's exactly right. Because you're in a state, remember what, it's what we said earlier about the self-rumination. That is, you're, you're letting go of all the bad thoughts you have about drinking that lead you to drink more, you know, that all the damage you've done and the people you've alienated and the thing you've done to your job or whatever it is. And all that does is traps you into feeling bad and feeling that, uh, you, you've made mistakes and you're going to keep making mistakes. So you cut loose that sort of traditional rumination about yourself. And you're saying, you know, there's another part of me that I haven't been paying much attention to. And it's the part of me that, that took care of my child, that walks my dog every day, that does the other, the, the, that caring part. That's a part I don't usually think about when I'm thinking about how I'm going to handle the impulse to drink. And so it allows you to connect with a different part of yourself in a frame of mind where you're not judging this new point of view. You're not saying, who's that guy speaking anyway and why is he talking about hypnosis? You're thinking, let me see what this experience is like. And one of the really nice things about it, Dwayne, is that you can feel good right away. You can feel good. And we have our, our we've done a study with 14,000 people who use Reverie, and they reported a 35% reduction in their stress levels in 15 minutes. Wow. So you will know right away whether it's likely to help you. And that's the good thing about it. You try it, see if you like it. Now, one thing I should say is that your brain needs to be working right to use it. So you've got to do it when you don't have substance on board. Right. Because otherwise, it'll be very hard to maintain the focus. So pick a time when you know you're going to be clean and sober and go for it and see what it feels like. But you should have the immediate positive reinforcement. You know, one thing about behavior change is that the best way to change behavior is intermittent positive reinforcement. If somebody yells at you, you're just going to shut it down and go somewhere else and get away from them. But if somebody says, hey, that's great, you know, you've been terrific the last couple of days, that kind of positive reinforcement makes us feel good. And it tends to keep us on the path, on the right path. And the nice thing about going into a hypnotic state is you can immediately start to feel good. Right. And right. so cognitively feel good because you're taking an approach that allows you to respect and protect your body. And you feel in a sensory way good because your body is relaxed and comfortable and you're imagining being somewhere where your body feels good. And if and if you've been struggling with some kind of emotional pain or, or physical pain or anything like that, getting that positive reinforcement in that moment to get that relief kind of helps you kind of continue this process because you you start to reward yourself. And, and that's what most people want. Right. We, we want to feel better. We want to get yeah. out of pain. Right. That's exactly right. And if you have physical pain, another one of the reverie apps is pain control. And we've done randomized controlled trials that show that even during surgery where you don't use general anesthesia, we can reduce the acute pain by 80 percent teaching people to do self-hypnosis. 
and you can change the you know the strain and pain lies mainly in the brain and some people get stuck addicted to substances because of pain problems and lord knows you know we've lost you know half a million americans in the last 10 years to opioid overdoses uh, it's it's a yeah. nightmare it's a disgrace and it is possible to substantially alter your pain perception using hypnosis so if pain is part of the problem you can try the hypnosis exercises to reduce or eliminate the pain filter the hurt out of the pain i've totally had that experience so i can i really? can validate huh. that experience and dealing with huh. chronic pain and understanding that pain is processed in the brain it's hard to it's hard to wrap your mind around that because it feels so in your body like you feel it right. in that experience but when you do something like this it yeah it actually takes that pain away. So I've had that experience and I can validate that that has been the same thing for me. And once I realized that, it was pretty amazing. And, and once I realized I could do that, right, then I would go back and do it again because I'm like, oh, here's this chronic pain, but it's actually my brain and I don't have to experience it the way that I'm experiencing it. I know that sounds strange, but I, I've had that experience, so I can, yeah, that's amazing. You're you're absolutely right. That the pain is a signal, starts with a signal in the body, but it's an interpretation made by the brain. And part of the problem is, you know, we're pretty pathetic physical creatures. We don't run very fast. We don't smell that well. We don't see as well as other animals. Uh, but we have this brain that can process signals. And we treat most pain as if it were acute pain. You know, if right. you just broke your arm, you better do something to get it fixed. Or if you're having crushing substrental chest pain, you better get to an ER quickly. But a lot of pain is chronic pain. You're not going to harm it anymore if you use it. And yet the brain's saying, oh, my God, maybe I broke my arm again, you know, that kind of thing. And so you can teach your brain to just turn down the game on the pain situation. And one exercise we use teaching self-hypnosis, for example, is ask yourself if you have pain, what do you do physically to give yourself relief? Do you take a warm bath? Do you put an ice pack on it? And then just look up, close your eyes, take a deep breath, let it out slowly, and imagine that you're doing that activity, that you're taking your warm bath. And you can use the association your brain has made between warm bath and pain relief, even if you're not in a warm bath. So there are ways that you can use your brain's own experience of associating a situation with with pain relief to get pain relief wherever you are yeah and and you said something that i would like to kind of touch on you said you know the brain is like misinterpreting these signals as i mean if you break your arm obviously you got to go get it fixed we're not talking about that acute pain that's right. very important right. pain we need to listen to it we're talking about that chronic right. pain but your your right. brain is misinterpreting those signals they're they're getting these signals and it's saying alert alert you know you, this is bad right. pain is pain is an right. alarm but sometimes it can miss fires but you know your brain is having a little pain post traumatic stress disorder because it's remembering the situation where the pain started in the first place and saying oh my god it's the same thing all over again when maybe it isn't maybe it's yeah. just a reminder and so you can train your brain to give the pain the right amount of attention, not more than it needs.
Yeah, there was a there was a study. I I don't know what it was, but someone told me about it. So I, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just going to say this is what I the gist of it was that they they sure. took a bunch of people with chronic back pain, and they took a bunch of people who didn't have chronic back pain, and they scanned all their backs, and both groups, the one that had no pain, and the one that had pain, all had the same amount of injuries, but one group was feeling all this pain. Why was this other group? Right. They had the same the same amount of injuries. They couldn't tell the difference. And yeah, very interesting. I, yeah, I have to. I'll have to look that up. I don't know where I read that, but the, which is really fascinating. Which talks about really shows the power of our our brain body connection and using things like hypnosis to to sh- our brain is more powerful than we think in ways. Absolutely right. It's the control center for the body. It's the, our major evolutionary advantage. This three pounds up on the top of our bodies, and we don't. It doesn't come with a user's manual. So there are a lot of things the brain can do that either can cause trouble or that can resolve trouble. And we need to learn more about, about how to use it. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and I think we are learning a lot. And like research like yours really yeah. helps, us, helps us do that. So kind of transitioning a little bit, I want to ask about, you know, if, if someone's like, oh, I want to do hypnosis, do they need to do it with somebody What's the difference between doing it with somebody who's trained in it versus doing it with yourself? Because I know there's also ways to self, like like you were talking about the app. Tell me a little bit about those different ways in which this works and the advantages and disadvantages of each. Well, uh, in in truth, Dwayne, all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis. People differ in their ability to experience hypnosis. About a quarter of adults just aren't hypnotizable, but three quarters are, and, and about 20, 25% are extremely hypnotizable. It's a pretty stable trait. And it sometimes does help to go to a licensed and trained professional to use it. But even then, even when I use it with all of my patients, I'm just taking advantage of their ability if they have it and showing them how to use it better. So it's something, and I used to think, you know, we used to worry that is it dangerous to have people do hypnosis on their own and all that. I'm not worried anymore, and I've decided that hypnosis has not gotten enough respect. And what I want to do at this point in my career is share the wealth. Let as many people as possible learn to use hypnosis, and the response has been overwhelmingly positive. So, But it is important to combine the use of hypnosis with either a responsible clinician who knows how to help you assess what the problem is, who's trained to do that, and who will take responsibility for the course of your treatment. So that means a licensed psychologist or physician or dentist and someone who also has experience with hypnosis. But you can use uh, apps like Reverie to try it on your own and see what it feels like. And then you may decide that you want to contact a licensed and trained clinician to help you with it more. That's great, but it's not necessary. There are things you learn using hypnosis that you can do on your own. Right. And I'm also thinking about, you know, talking about how when the brain is in that plastic state, that more, what did you call it earlier? What did you say? The, 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 the brain is in that state of um, change. Cognitive flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was looking for. The, you know, when that brain is in that cognitive flexibility and if you're really kind of stuck, you know, having someone else give you ideas of how to perceive something differently, you know, outside of yourself, I would imagine could be a really helpful tool if you're struggling, because they may be able to have a different insight into your situation that your brain at that moment can't imagine. 
And then all of a sudden you hear that from someone else's voice and you're in that, you know, you're open with that cognitive flexibility, hearing that in a different way, you can go, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. And ha having someone to walk you through that, if you feel like you're really stuck. That you're, that's exactly right. And because you're in that open state, you want someone, if you're using a professional to help you with it, who has good ideas, not bad ideas, about yeah. the best way to deal with it. So you're more likely to, at least for a while, accept a new point of view about the problem. And if that's a good point of view and a good therapeutic approach, great, it'll enhance it. On the other hand, if they're pushing you in the wrong direction, uh, you that's... might go in the wrong direction longer, too. So that's why you want a licensed and trained professional to, to help you if you're going to go that route. Yeah, absolutely. With a qualified clinician that understands understands this maybe in, in, a, in a little bit of a, a, a deeper way or more trained trained way yeah i would definitely that's right definitely agree agree with that I, i'm trying to kind of think of like where we want to go next here i mean this is so sure. it's so fascinating to see this work and to to see this take place tell us a little bit about putting together this app and and why you decided to do this and why you decided to create Reverie. Well, thanks, Dwayne. I, I was giving a talk at a Brain Mind Summit at Stanford uh, about three years ago. And um, a guy who went to Stanford Business School and MIT named Ariel Poehler came up to me. He was at the meeting. And, you know, Stanford is, you know, a well-known incubator for linking uh, research with companies, with startups, and to spread it around. And he said, hey, David, would you like to try it? Should we make an app and see what happens? And at the time, Amazon was using this interactive voice things and your Alexa speakers will right. hear what you say and everything else you say as well. And he said, they make it pretty easy to program them. Why don't we try it? So he helped me set up uh, the first. It was a smoking abstinence app. And the approach was very similar to the approach that we use with dealing with uh, substance abuse. We tried it and we actually did a study. We got a very nice donor to give us some money to help study it. And we found that 19% of the people that just use the Alexa app stop smoking. Wow. And that's as good or better than you get with a lot of medications. Not everybody, but it's a lot of people. And I began to think, Dwayne, that, uh, you know, I've devoted my, you know, I used to think, you know, build it and they will come. You do enough research to prove that this is scientifically valid and people will use it. Well, you know what? That hasn't happened. And I yeah. decided I don't have enough time left to to wait for that to happen. And I want people to have this available to them. And so Ariel and I built a company. We built Reverie. We designed these apps now, which are not on Alexa anymore. They're uh, within the app. They work very smoothly and very well. We have a little team of about 12 people who are just terrific. We've enrolled over 200,000 people. We want to enroll more. We want, we, we, you know, we have like 5,000 a month using the app. And I want to make this available to people. I'm not waiting anymore for people to conclude that it is really safe and effective after all, because we've proven it is. We know it is. Colleagues and I have done that for decades. And we just want to give people the opportunity to use it. And so that's why we built Reverie and uh, it's still growing and I hope it will continue to do that and make it available to as many people as want to use it. That's that's awesome, David. I, I love that. I mean, it's just like bringing, uh, you know, ending people's suffering as best we can and and bringing that knowledge to people. I mean, so many times, it, you know, in, in my 
profession as a, a mental health clinician, you know, there's just so much suffering out there and pain that doesn't need to be there. And, and people just sometimes don't have the right tool in front of them. And once they get that tool, they can shift their life and they can, they can do better and feel better and not be as in much emotional or physical pain or whatever it is and really thrive. And that just helps everybody around them. So I love that you're doing that. I, th I think that's great. And you're bringing that to people. That's amazing. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that, Dwayne. You know, we're learning a lot from this lousy pandemic. And uh, one of the things is that the way you and I are talking right now is the way I now do most of my person-to-person -person therapy, Yeah. you know, with Zoom. And you know what? It works. You know, I, I get to see people in their home environment, their cat jumps on the desk, you know, all kinds of, and, yep. and they don't have to, you know, take an afternoon off to see me. They can do it in an hour. And, and so, and it's, it works, you know, it's as effective as uh, it was face to face. So that's one way. And it's, it, it, we're learning that there are aspects of many of our treatments and certainly many of our psychotherapies that can be taught and that we can use these wonderful media now to distribute that and make it far more available than it ever could have been to people at far less cost. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I totally agree with you. I think the uh, pandemic, one of the things that was beneficial is really kind of forced us to think outside of the box when we're dealing with these kind of issues, because I've had the same experience and also leveraging technology to deliver some of these services in new ways that are just as effective and, and really helpful. So, David, before you go, I, I, I ask yes. every every guest one question before we wrap up. And if someone is out there struggling, you know, or they're in pain or they're hurting and you could tell them one thing, what would you want them to know? I want them to know that it, it is almost certain that at least some of the answers to your problem lie within your brain and your body. And if you just make better use of your own resources you can help yourself. You focus on what you're for, assess what you've got inside you and things you've done that have worked in the past or things you've learned from other people, your parents, your friends that have helped you, things you have done to help other people and take advantage of that uh, repertoire of coping skills and build it up for yourself, apply it to yourself. Oh, that's an awesome, great piece of wisdom. Thank you, David, for coming on to The Addicted Mind. Before you go, where can people find you and how can they get more information? So just go to www.reverie.com and it will show you how to download the app. It will give you information. It'll show you the research basis upon which Reverie is built. We, we have a user group that gets together regularly and talks about their experiences and you can share your experiences. And um, so it's easy to find, just www.reverie.com. And I invite you to give it a try. The worst thing that happens is it won't work. But for many people, it does. And it's worth a try. That, that's awesome. I will put all those links and stuff and contact information that, that you gave me in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. David, thank you so Great. much for coming on, sharing your time, sharing your wisdom. I, I just really appreciate You're it. Most you're most welcome. And thanks for the good work that you're doing, helping people. It's great. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So go check them out. 
And if you enjoyed this podcast, you think it's valuable, share with a friend. Or you can even now subscribe to us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. There you can get all the latest episodes. And if you have any questions, you can go to Instagram and ask them there. And hopefully we'll be able to share some of those questions on the podcast as well. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.